I'd like to read a couple of verses from Isaiah. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. Father, we thank you that you're the God of yesterday, today, and forever. With you, there is no time in the sense that we think of it. One day we will dwell beyond the limitations of time. Father, we thank you that in our era, you are present with, our, with each of us and that you're doing your great work in the church. Father, we trust you to work here this morning in this class, speaking to us through your word, meeting each need according to your divine plan. We thank you for your love and grace and mercy and how you are patient with us day by day. Lord, I pray that you will continue to make in us the image of Christ, that we reflect, will reflect his glory to those that are part of our lives each and every day. As the word is proclaimed this morning, throughout this property and throughout this city and around the world, we ask that you will glorify your great name, for it is in that name we pray. Amen. If you will turn to the 16th chapter of the book of Judges, I'd like to read verses 4 through 9. Now after this, it came about that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said, Entice him, and see where his great strength lies, and how we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him. Then we will each give you eleven hundred pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength is, and how you may be bound to afflict you. And Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh cords that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh cords that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in wait in an inner room. And she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the cords as a string of tow snaps when it's touched by fire, so his strength was not discovered. Well, we've walked with Samson through these years. Twenty years, we're told in Scripture, he was judge in Israel. And we've seen his um, dealings with Philistine women. And now we discover that in this passage and, and the remaining part of this chapter that he will love one Philistine woman too many. He's now back in his old stomping ground. He's back in the Sorek Valley where he was raised. And there he found a woman by the name of Delilah. Again, reminding you, the Sorek Valley is this one right here. Sorek comes out of the hill country of Judea and flows down and out to sea here. So he's somewhere down in here. There's no doubt, I believe at least, that this woman is a Philistine. But what is interesting is that her name is not a Philistine name. Her name is a Semitic name. Now again, let me remind you, the Philistines apparently originally came from Asia Minor. Asia Minor is a, is a region of the world that through the through the millennia, has almost always been inhabited by either Indo-Europeans or, of course, after the Turkish invasion, by people who, who speak a Turkic language. Never Semitic. And so the Philistines are not a Semitic people. 
but her name is Semitic. Some say that it meant wistful one. Well, maybe. Her actions and what we see describing her in this passage seem to indicate that she may have been a prostitute. Some of those interpret the meaning of her name as devotee, implying that she was a temple prostitute, a cult prostitute, which was very widely practiced in those days by women and even men. And of course, that was not considered to be common prostitution. That was devoted prostitution. Whether that's what she was or not, nobody can absolutely agree. But uh, this is a a possibility. Whatever the case was, Samson's infatuation with her lasted long enough for the word to get back to the leaders of the Philistine cities, to Ekron and Gath and Gaza and so forth, that Samson has this affair going on with this Philistine woman by the name of Delilah. And so the lords of the Philistine cities thought, wow, there's an opportunity here. Let us come down and meet with Delilah. And so they did so. And they had secret conversations with her. And they said, you know, this guy you're meeting with, uh, he's a great danger to us and we would sure like to capture him. And if you will facilitate our capture of this man, we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Well, since there are five cities in the Philistine Pentapolis and probably five lords, therefore, that would be five times 1,100, which would be 5,500 pieces of silver. In those days, that would have been a princely sum of money. So they're offering her a great deal of money to betray this man, Samson. I think this becomes very obvious as we're reading through this passage. The quick the quickness with which she takes the offer and the way by which she pursues trying to discover his strength, that she did not reciprocate his love for her. Now, did he really love her? Or was it purely, again, just an expression of his lust? Whatever the case was, there's obvious, it's obvious that she did not love him. She accepted the bribe rather quickly and you'll notice how boldly, it just it strikes me at least, and I'm sure it does you, how boldly she approaches uh, trying to get the answer to this. In verse 6, uh, we read that, that Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength is and how you may be bound to afflict you. <laughs> you think, duh, Samson, are you paying any attention or not here? I mean... This isn't just a kind little thoughtless phrase. Well, you know, how how come you're so strong, Samson? No, no, no. How come you're so strong and how in the world can we deal with this? How can we get rid of your strength? Seems to be the implication here. Well, Samson, of course, has dealt with a Philistine woman before, and we know on more than one occasion. But in the case of his Philistine wife, if you will remember back early in his career, she badgered him and badgered him and badgered him to try to discover the meaning of the riddle that he had given at the wedding. And of course, he of course had resisted her. But here we discover Samson did not grasp what was really behind Delilah's feigned innocent curiosity. His betrayal by his Philistine wife apparently did not cause him to beware of the self-serving and devious ways of these Philistine women, no matter how enticing or loving they might appear to be. 
And as I thought about this, the words of Jesus came to my mind where he warned his disciples, and we read about it in, in the 10th chapter of Matthew. Jesus said to his disciples, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Those are two terms that do not apply to Samson, either shrewd or innocent. He was not shrewd as a serpent, nor was he as innocent as a dove. In fact, I, I, and I use this word, I, I think correctly, he, he was pretty foolish. He was playing with fire, and he played with fire one time too many. Did he really trust Delilah? Did he really believe that this woman was just innocently pro probing for this answer? Uh, did he think she really loved him? Was he so blinded by her beauty that, that he didn't think that this, this beautiful woman could do anything wrong or anything to harm him? Or did his constant success with the Philistines cause him to become so arrogant and so cocksure that he felt somehow exempted from the need to explicitly obey the word of God. I think it will become clear to us and is clear to us from having read this story before. And I think it became clear to Samson eventually that no one, no one is so essential to God's plan that he or she can ignore God's word with impunity. And I think we have seen this in what has happened to to television preachers and others in recent decades in America who've gone beyond staying to the truth of the Scripture and have felt they were somehow immune, couldn't do wrong, and they fell. I think we are, at least I was, in considering this, reminded of Jesus' words in the sixth chapter of Luke. We know the passage well, but I think it's very fitting to read it here. In the sixth chapter of Luke, uh, beginning at verse 46, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation upon a rock. And when the flood rose, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and does, has not acted accordingly is like a man who built his house upon the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. If anybody fits that in Scripture, Samson fits that description man whose foundation was not in God's Word, not in the teaching of the Lord, but in his own faith, in his own strength. I'd like to repeat what I said last time, and that is that God will use Samson in spite of his weaknesses and his failures. But I think God would have used him in a far greater way, and in a way that would have been far more satisfying to Samson had he been a man who sought God daily and obeyed God's word explicitly. It's obvious from this passage that Samson took Delilah's supposed innocent curiosity very lightly. When she asked him how he might be 
effectively bound so that his great strength could be harnessed, he flippantly told her, well, you know, if I'm bound with seven fresh catgut bowstrings, then I will be rendered powerless. Well, just in case he was telling the truth, which she doubted, but just in case he was telling the truth, she had some Philistine men come and hide in her inner room, in, in her house, so that they could be there to deal with him in case he was actually rendered, rendered helpless by these bowstrings. I don't think she really trusted him. And of course, she didn't want to give away her true motive here, even though she was doing the best. It seems like it was pretty obvious, at least the way we read it here. And so after she bound him with these bowstrings, she shouted to him that the Philistines are on you, Samson. And of course, as I think she suspected, he jumped up and twing, you know, all the bowstrings broke. And the scripture tells us that they broke they and, and he snapped the cords as a string of tow snaps when it touches the fire. Tow is, is pre-spun flax fiber before it's actually even been spun into, into string or thread or yarn. And, and so it's very, very weak. And, and when you put it to fire, fire it just, just almost dissolves. And so the implication is that these bowstrings were absolutely no hindrance to this guy at all. Wham, you know, and they were all gone, flying off his body as if there had been nothing there at all. I, I don't know if, if, if we could put ourselves in Samson's um, sandals. We think, you know, why are you letting this woman actually do this to you? Now, you've told her that if she bind, binds you with these bowstrings, that you will be as weak as any other man, and you're letting, why is she doing this? <laughs> why are you letting her do this? Are you playing a game with this woman? Do you think she's just innocently checking it out? Well, let's read on in chapter 16, verse 10. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have deceived me and told me lies. Now please tell me how you may be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me tightly with new ropes, which have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like other men. Well, you know, that's exactly what the Judeans had done. They had bound him with new ropes as they brought him down from the, from the cave to turn him over to the Philistine before he killed a thousand of them with a jawbone of an ass. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are on you, Samson, for the men were lying in wait in the inner room. But he snapped the ropes from his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Up to now you have deceived me and told me lies. Tell me how you may be bound. She's becoming more insistent here. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my hair with the web and fasten it with a pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, this guy did a lot of sleeping with her awake. Delilah took the seven locks of his hair and drove them into and wove them into the web. And she fastened it with a pin and said to him, the Philistines are on you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled out the pin of the loom and the web. Notice that the deceiver is accusing the deceived of being a deceiver. Solomon gave us a wonderful warning back in Proverbs in the first chapter when he wrote, My son, if sinners entice you, just say no. Consent thou not, is what it says, but just say no. You know? That's what he said there. 
Now, Solomon's words, of course, were written after the time of Samson. Now, so Solomon comes a couple hundred years later, so obviously Samson couldn't have read Solomon's words. But if you read through the Pentateuch, if you read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that truth is already there. It's repeated over and over again. That's what I like about the Old Testament. Every single truth in the New Testament has already been taught many times in the Old. However, Samson seems to be totally oblivious to the truth or, or unwilling to pay attention to, or, or as I said before, to think that he was somehow immune. I don't have to obey because I'm the Shofat. To me, Samson is perfectly described in another proverb that I think you all know well, but let me read from it, the seventh proverb. If this doesn't describe Samson, I don't know who it describes. In the seventh proverb, beginning at verse 6, we read, For at the window of my house I looked out through my lattice, and I saw among the naive, I discerned among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner. He takes the way to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, in the darkness. Behold, a woman comes out to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious, and her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. So she seizes him and kisses him. And with a brazen face, she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I've paid my, my vows. Therefore, I've come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses, for the man, meaning her husband, is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver and a bird hastens to, as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Do you suppose that when Samson, that is, when Solomon wrote that, that Samson was in his mind? Very possible. Twice more, Samson plays Delilah's game. First he said, well, bind me with new ropes and then I will be weak as other men. And so she, you know, he allows her to bind her, him, with new ropes. I, you know, did he ever stop to think, now, where is she getting this cat, these cat gut bowstrings? I mean, Delilah probably doesn't have lots of bows. She probably done an armory here on the other side of her house here. Where is she getting these new ropes? Where is she getting this stuff? Doesn't seem to ask any questions. And of course, pops off the ropes as if they were threads, the scripture says. And then secondly, and much closer to the truth, he says, if you weave the seven locks of my hair, in a web and then lash them to a pin, tie them to a pin. Then I will be weak as other men. Oh, Samson, you're walking awfully close to the line now. Samson was foolishly flirting with disaster. Having come so close to the truth, it wasn't so hard for him to finally break down and tell her the real truth of the situation, where his real source of strength rested. As we read on in 
this chapter in verse six, uh, verse 15. Then she said to him, "How can I say? How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have deceived me these three times, and have not told me where your great strength is." And it came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. So he told her all that was in his heart and said to her, A razor has never come on my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. What is the time frame here? What, is the, what span of time are we talking about here for these events? Well, we're not told in Scripture here how long this took place. It did not take place in one night. These verses, I think, describe several consecutive days or nights, maybe consecutive. We, we don't even know that. That it didn't all occur in one evening, however, or one day seems to be clear because the Scripture in verse 16 said, that she pressed him daily with her words. The implication is, over a period of time, she was constantly dripping on his head with this question. Samson, if you really love me, you'd tell me the truth. Where is the source of your great strength? You know, it's the implication that people in love have no secrets. But does Samson really know the meaning of love? Throughout these encounters, I think we have to believe that Delilah was using her charms and her physical beauty to the ultimate to convince this man he, that she really loved him. I mean, she was as alluring and, you know, whatever. You can just, your imagination can run away here. But she was doing everything in her power to convince him that she really loved him and she was innocent in her wanting to know the source of his strength. And I think that certainly helped to wear down her, his resistance. She is so lovely. She is so enticing. That's what, it, what Solomon said in the seventh proverb there. Though she entice you, though in the first proverb, if sinners entice you, consent not. Well, her success was primarily due not to her persistence, but to Samson's weakness for beautiful women and for his lack of concern about the importance of keeping the word of God. He was to remain a Nazarite his entire life. He knew that. That was God's word to him through his parents. And to him, it was no big deal. I mean, he knew. Every time he said to her, well, if you tie me with bowstrings, if you tie me with new ropes, if you weave my hair, she did it each time. So now he says it's in my hair. Does he think she's just going to say, oh, well, thank you, Samson. Glad you finally told the truth and not try it? Like Samson's Philistine wife, when she was begging him over and over again to tell, him the, tell her the solution to the riddle, Delilah inferred that the fact that he was not telling her the truth meant that he didn't love her. You don't love me because you haven't told me the truth. Delilah's greatest attribute is her persistence. She doesn't give up. Now, she is not driven forward in the same way that Samson's Philistine wife was. Remember, in the case of Samson's Philistine wife, 
she was told by the men at the, at the uh, party there, at the wedding party, you don't find out the answer and you're a dead woman. We're going to burn you and your father in fire. Well, in, in Delilah's case, they weren't threatening to burn her. They were just offering her a wealthy, uh, huge amount of money. So either way, that was a motivation. In her case, Delilah's case, it was simply money. So she pressed him day after day, night after night, until the scripture says that his soul was annoyed to death. Do you remember the passage back when uh, Samson was, was dealing with his, when his wife was badgering him? How, how was it now? It says something very, very similar to that. I should have noted it down, but I'm trying to re remember what the actual statement was back there. She just kept pressing him until something like that. He was just annoyed to the point where he, okay, I'll tell you. And so it was here with Delilah. Is this guy clueless or what? He, he almost gives you a sense of this stereotypical guy who's got all brawn and no brain. Verse 18, when Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in his heart. She sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all that is in his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. And she made him sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his hair. Then she began to afflict him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he woke up from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze chains. And he was a grinder in the prison. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it was shaved off. <laughs> Excellent point, yes. <laughs> A point I was going to make. <laughs> You're sleeping on this gal's knees and this guy's shaving all your hair off, you know. I don't know. I don't think I could do that. Well, it doesn't say that, but it's very possible, yes, that uh, she encouraged his sleep with a little alcohol, <laughs> which, of course, he wasn't supposed to touch, but none of that seemed to matter much to him. What we see here is that Delilah understood Samson far better than Samson understood Delilah. She could tell that on this occasion now, he has finally spilled the real beans. He has actually told her the truth. And so she calls the lords of the Philistines. And these guys, you know, they've been in town now for days and they've been waiting for her to finally get through to this guy and find out what the real answer to his strength is. And I think they were tired of living in the little old town. You know, they, they live in a big town. They live in palaces. And here they are shacked up in this little town. I don't think they're real happy with this. And so they're very glad when she says, I think he's really told the truth this time. Why don't you come? And we're, we're, the implication is that they really believe her and that she has really convinced them that it's true because they bring the money with them, we're told. And so she sweet talks him or maybe liquors him to sleep, whatever is the case. But certainly she sweet talks him. And he's sawing logs there on her knees. I think the saddest part of this whole story is 
that Samson has become so foolish he does not even know when the Spirit of God has departed from him. He does not even know that. None of us has any meaningful strength, any strength that makes a hill of beans a difference in this life without the empowering presence of the Lord in our lives. Jesus told his disciples that without me you can do nada, zero, nothing. Samson had taken the Lord for granted year after year in his life. He had been so disobedient over and over again that it had become his practice. And he couldn't even sense that the Lord was not with him any longer. I think that is probably the greatest tragedy in life is if we have become so spiritually indifferent and cold that we don't even know whether the Lord is present or absent. One of the greatest joys of fellowshipping together with other believers is knowing that God is there. Where two or three have gathered in my name, there I am in their midst, we're told in Scripture. And I think over a period of time, we, we, become, we, we come to the place where we actually can sense that. I'm, I'm sure you've been in places where you've walked into a, a, a particular place and you felt, whoa, there's a wall here, you know, it's cold here. And, and you get a sense that God is not present there you know, in, in whatever this group is, whatever this meaning is. And then you've, on the other hand, walked into a group and sensed a real peace and a real sense of community because God is present there. But Samson has become inured and doesn't know that God's Spirit is not there. I mean, isn't... isn't the whole truth of, of Samson is, is made so clear in this passage when in verse 20... She says, the Philistines are upon you. And he awoke and he said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. He's told her the truth. He knows that she's followed every time on his, you know, whatever he's told her would make him weak. She's done it. Now he jumps up as if God will be with me as he's always been with me. It's blind, spiritually blind. And of course, the result will be he will become physically blind too. How surprised was Samson when the Philistines grabbed him and he could not shake them off. He could not tear them apart. He could not defeat them. How betrayed did he feel when he finally understood that this beautiful woman who had protested her love for him had sold him out, had destroyed him. To me, this man is, is an object of, of compassion. <laughs> he needs some compassion. He receives a very harsh lesson concerning the true nature of people who are not governed by the moral principles of the Word of God. And if that isn't a profound proclamation that needs to be expressed in this country, I don't know what is. As we move further and further and more boldly away from any of the moral principles of God, and, and to me it really is, is, is frightening as you think of our current campaign for the presidency and, and that statements are being made that are so boldly anti-Christian. The Philistines didn't kill Samson outright because he's no longer a threat to them. He's, he's weak. They've bound him. And they wanted to display their trophy and they wanted to take their time to figure out the best way to satisfy their desire for revenge. So they didn't do anything rash here. Besides, he's blind. They gouged or burned his eyes out. 
And so obviously, he's not going to be any threat, right? Why is he still alive really though? He's still alive because God's not done with him, right? It reminds me of the story of Archimedes. Archimedes lived in the third century before Christ and he was defending the city of Syracuse in, on Sicily against the attack of the Romans. And he had invented a lot of uh, very interesting um, weapons. He was one of the earliest developers of the, uh, of the um, catapult and the, the lever and, and all kinds of things that uh, he invented that were being used very effectively against the Romans. And the commander of the Roman force said, when we get in this city, I don't want anybody to bring any harm. We need that man. <laughs> but in the heat of battle, when the city was taken, one of the soldiers killed Archimedes. God wasn't going, I mean, somebody could have easily just said, oh, this, we, this guy's been so much trouble to us. Could have killed Samson right on the spot. But God was not ready to have Samson die. So God really preserved him. But they did get to, to express their sadism here in, I think, with great pleasure, gouging or burning out this man's eyes. Lust through the eye, no more. Yes. I'm sure he had lots of memories still back in his head there, but no more to add to them. They were very convinced, I think, that a blind Samson would be no threat to them. <laughs> they didn't know, of course, the God of Samson. But they didn't take any chain, uh, chances with him. They, they were afraid his strength might return. There was always that possibility. So they bound him with bronze chains. Bronze was the most widely used metal in those days. Iron had already been discovered in terms of knowing how to process it to some degree, but it wasn't very widely used yet. So bronze was still the um, strongest thing with which they could bind him. And then to humiliate him, they took him down to Gaza and they attached him to a, a mill. And he, instead of an ox, he, oh, day after day after day, pushed the, the millstone around and around and around and around to grind the grain. Can you think how uh, fitting that was? Because back in the earlier part of his life, when his wife had, you know, enticed him to tell the truth about his riddle, and then she had told the other guys, she he, he accused them of plowing with his heifer. You know, he called her a heifer. Well, how fitting now that he's an ox, you know. Replace an ox and doing the job of an ox. Why did they take him clear down to Gaza in the south? Well, I think, first of all, because the city was furthest from his hometown and, you know, anybody who might want to come and, and break him free that uh, would be less likely to happen. Plus the fact it was at Gaza that he had so humiliated them by tearing the gates off the city and parking him four miles away on the top of a hill. And these people in Gaza really wanted this guy's hide. And so they brought him down to Gaza. And in verse 22, there is the statement, a very ominous phenomenon which the Philistines were oblivious of. And it's the simple statement there that Samson's hair began to grow out. Now, we need to understand, of course, and I, I'm sure we all do, that Samson's hair was not the source of his strength. But as his hair grew back in, it symbolized the fact that God would restore his strength, at least for the purposes of accomplishing God's final act in Samson's life. And, of course, we know the story. I think that in his death, he slew more Philistines than he had throughout his life. And that is not a commentary on the greatness of Samson. It's a commentary on the might and power and sovereignty of God. Well, we don't have time today to 
pursue this further, but I think one of the important things we have to note is that Satan is endeavoring to destroy God's shofat, and he will try to humiliate him as much as possible. And as Satan always does, he oversteps his hand and plays right into God's hand. You mean it for evil, but God means it for good.